Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Amy Gunn, and I will be your host for today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode. Today, we are speaking to Christy Jones. Christy is widely recognized as one of the best product liability defense attorneys in the United States and beyond. She has a BA from the University of Arkansas Phi Beta Kappa and also got her law degree from the University of Arkansas. She started at her current firm of Butler Snow directly after law school and has been a member of the American College of Trial Lawyers since 1997, also serving on the Board of Regents. She's a member of ABOTA and the International Academy of Trial Lawyers, in addition to many other legal organizations. She's also the recipient of numerous additional awards and honors, including the 2012 Mississippi Bar Foundation Professionalism Award, the 2017 Benchmark Product Liability Attorney of the Year, and the University of Arkansas Gail Pettis Pons Award from the Women Law Students in 2020. In her career, she has represented pharmaceutical and drug device companies such as Merck, Johnson & Johnson, Baxter, and Glasgow SmithKline. Hello, Christy. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I am doing wonderful today. Thanks for asking. So I want to start with a little bit of background. Can you tell us where you grew up? I grew up in a small town in North Mississippi called Holly Springs, a town of about 7,500. And what took you from Holly Springs to law school? Well, I have a couple of interesting stories. One, I left Holly Springs. I was 20 miles away from Ole Miss, so I needed to stretch my wings and fly, and I went to the University of Arkansas. I happened to be the fourth generation to attend the University of Arkansas. But what really got me into law school goes back to high school. One of the activities that we had in high school was what we call then the Glee Club, which was the chorus. And of course, everybody wanted to participate in that. And so did I. The problem was I couldn't sing. <laughs> and to get me out of the chorus, the choral director asked if I would do a monologue for the Thanksgiving program so that I would take it from the beginning through introduction of the various numbers all the way to the end, which I did. And I found that I absolutely loved standing up talking to an audience. And from that day forward, I was headed to law school. Wow. Were you the first lawyer in your family? I was. Fantastic. And so it really was that feeling of being able to guide your audience through the story, it sounds like, that attracted you to trial work in particular. It was not only guiding the audience through the story, but it was just simply the thrill of standing up and talking to a group of people about something that was important. Yeah. And did you, in all of your years of practicing, have you always felt that way? I have. I don't think there's any better experience than standing up talking to a jury, whether it's an opening or closing, or frankly, even on a good cross-examination. And you've had plenty of those in your career, and I'd love to hear about some of those. You've spent a good deal of time 
in the defense of product liability actions, particularly what I guess we see a lot of now, the mass tort litigation. And how did you get your start in that? I was a very young lawyer when the DES litigation, Diethyl Stilbestrol, started. And we had a case filed here in Mississippi, and my then senior partner was contacted about handling the case for the pharmaceutical company. And I went and begged to work on the case, not because of anything other than I was interested in the theory. As you may know, the theory was that mothers who took diethylstilbestrol during their pregnancy took it to prevent miscarriages, and their offspring some 20 or 30 years later then began to have certain gynecological problems, including infertility and or cancers that were allegedly attributable to the drug. And I was just interested in the subject matter. So I asked to do that. And because of the sensitive nature of the subject matter, when the plaintiffs would be deposed, they had to be asked about certain private matters like their sexual activities and to some extent sexually transmitted diseases or other habits. And so this was back in the late 1970s and there weren't very many women around trying cases and there surely weren't many women out taking depositions, asking deponents about those type of questions. But they were clearly much better questions asked by women of women than they were by men that might otherwise be misinterpreted. So as a young lawyer, I got to take a pretty significant role in that case. As it happened, the in-house counsel for that client moved from that company to another company that was defending IUDs at the time, a contraceptive who called and asked my senior partner and asked it would be okay if I actually worked on those cases. And over a period of time, I first started with subject matter that was important for a woman to be handling because of the sensitive nature of it into then all different types of pharmaceutical and medical device cases, in part because my clients moved from one company to another. That's kind of where you and I met each other, working on the transvaginal mesh litigation, which was also a litigation particular to women. And so it seems that that was an area of law that you were already very well established in, not just product liability, but also women's issues involved or products that were marketed and sold to women. Well, that was certainly how I got my start and my first introduction to the pharmaceutical and medical device world. But as we know, you don't continue to be in any area of law or any profession for that matter, unless you're really darn good at it. So how did you perfect your skills? Well, I guess the simple answer is hard work over a period of time. However, Other than dealing with women's issues, I tended to deal with a lot of very difficult, sympathetic cases, children that died or children that lost their eyesight and whatever. And in those matters, the 
emotional demands of those cases in both addressing the issues with the jury as well as directing cross-examination of the parties in the courtroom are really pretty specialized in a way. You know it from the other side of the V, but it's very difficult and very important to treat people with respect, whether they're the plaintiffs or the children or the parents, even while you're defending very difficult cases. And so at some point along the way, I learned that one of the things helpful to me in communicating with the jury was to maintain my credibility throughout with the jury, and that I did that in part by treating the opposition with respect. The other side of that in working with these cases is that it's hard work because, as you know, when you walk into that courtroom, you have to know the medicine or the product better than any expert witness that's going to get on the witness stand. And so it means constant learning, although that happens to be one of the challenges in product liability law that makes it so attractive. And in your time in these very sensitive cases, I'm just curious because you're right, I represent plaintiffs in these types of cases. And one of the things when I prepare my clients for deposition is I have to say, They're going to ask you some very sensitive questions. And when I have a lawyer on the other side that isn't delicate or respectful, I prep my client. I say, if that happens, unfortunately, we just have to get through this time. But what it does is it makes my client almost always more committed to the litigation. And it's an interesting thing because oftentimes I feel like there's some not purpose, well, maybe purposeful, maybe not, like intimidation. It's just a hard thing to go through. And I just think that your technique from my side of the table, your technique is so much more effective. And that is probably because it comes from a real place from you, right? I mean, you're not just playing to care about the answers or to be delicate about this. That's just who you are. Well, I'd like to think that's who I am. I also think that those plaintiffs, for the most part, the vast majority of them believe that they have a valid claim. And while I might disagree that they have a valid claim under the law, for the most part, I wouldn't disagree that they have been injured or they're hurt or they have issues that need to be addressed. And they have every right to be in that courtroom, just as much right to be in that courtroom as I do. And I think that the most important cross-examination in a lawsuit of any sensitive nature is the cross-examination of the plaintiff or the parent. And in most cases, I would actually go and take the deposition of the plaintiff myself in large part because I wanted the plaintiff to feel comfortable with me. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I wanted the plaintiff to feel like I was her friend. Now, that might be a slight exaggeration, but I did not want her or him to walk out feeling angry because I frankly agree with you that if they're attacked, it makes them far more committed to the litigation and frankly, a much more dangerous witness for me. Yeah. 
And in the years that you've been doing this work, how do you advise younger attorneys? Maybe it's the same concept, but do you give advice to the younger attorneys that you're mentoring on the best way to approach these situations? Well, I do. And I've taught classes, you know, on it with young people. And I tell them essentially what I just told you, that they have to treat the plaintiffs with respect. If it's a medical device or pharmaceutical case, they have to know the medical records backwards and forwards. And that they will generally get much more with honey than with vinegar. (laughs) And I believe that. I do, too. So I think that at the end of the day, part of it is just treating these people, in my case, we're talking about plaintiffs for the most part, treating them with respect. Have you noticed over the years a change in the civility of the bar? Regrettably, yes. How so? Well, I think two things. One, I think that there are far too many lawyers who believe that aggressiveness or scorched earth approaches constitute a win. I frankly think it rarely does, and it certainly does not constitute a win for the judicial system. Mm -hmm. I think part of what we are seeing is just a part of what we're seeing in society in general today that it's everybody takes a side and you fight hard for that side without really trying to work together and see how you can create a successful resolution, even if it means trying that case together. It used to be that we could go try a case and go out and have a beer at the end of the case, be friends and walk away from it. I remember trying a case that I actually obtained a directed verdict in and left a co-defendant sitting there. And at the end of the day, which happened to be a Friday when we got the directed verdict, the plaintiff's lawyer said, why don't you come have a drink? We'll buy you a drink, which I did. Yeah. And it turned out that counsel for the co-defendant, including their in-house counsel, happened to come by and see me there. And they then went and called my client in-house, which happened to be from Philadelphia, to complain about my socializing with the enemy. Oh, interesting. Now, I thought that was absolutely absurd, as did, frankly, my client. Because, as you know, the lawyers can jointly ensure that the jury comes to the right decision fairly by working together, even if they're on opposite sides. I want to go back to a story that I had read involving a skating rink. One of my very first clients was Funtime Skateland here in Jackson, and it was the first case that I tried to verdict jury trial essentially by myself. I had a lawyer who was sitting with me, one of my then partners, who's now a Fifth Circuit judge, and we laughingly say that I still have bruises from him hitting me in the side, telling me to stand up and object. (laughs) But I tried several of those cases for one time in my early years where 
the issue was whether or not my client had been negligent because the plaintiff had fallen and broken a leg while skating or something similar. Right. I think what you're asking about is that some years later, Funtime Skateland went out of business and a friend of mine in the interior decorating business actually bought all of the skating rink floors which you may not know, but they're beautiful floors. They're all sanded and very fine to ensure that there's no flaws that might cause an accident. And my kitchen table is now built out of the skating rink floor. (laughs) So a pleasant reminder of your early, early trials. Right. Oh, that's fun. You've tried so many cases. Christy, are there any that really stand out, either in terms of your clients or the subject matter or anything that happened during trial? Well, they all do in separate ways. I tried a case, actually in Mississippi, that involved 10 plaintiffs and a drug called Propulsive, which was a GI drug that was widely recommended by virtually every GI doc in the world and was alleged to have a potential cardiac side effect. The issue at the time was if, in fact, somebody experienced the side effect, one of two things either happened. Either you died or you recovered completely. It did nothing. I tried a case in Mississippi in 2001, and I remember the date specifically because it was over 9-11. We tried the case for a couple of months in a very hostile jurisdiction. At that time, Mississippi did not have class actions, but this particular court was allowing thousands of cases to be aggregated for purposes of filing suit. And what happened was that companies and corporations would not try the cases. They were being held essentially hostage, and everybody was settling cases. This was an important case from the client standpoint, not only because We had good proof that the plaintiffs were not injured, but because some of the things that were happening were inconsistent with fairness in the judicial process. We tried that case. We tried it for about two months. The jury was out two hours and returned a verdict for $100 million against me. And that didn't include punitive damages. And the judge immediately looked at it and said, do y'all want to come back in the morning, start on punitives? Ultimately, the court did not instruct on punitive damages. I go through this because we ultimately appeal that case and change the law in Mississippi. The case was reversed and rendered. I actually ended up with a judgment against the plaintiffs for the amount of the bond that we were required to post, which was about $750,000. It was a case where even the Mississippi Supreme Court said was not handled in a fair and appropriate manner. And I remember arguing, it's one of the few times that I've simply argued at the appellate level that what happened was just flat wrong, and it was. I say that, and that's important to me because we ultimately changed the playing field in the state of Mississippi so that the aggregation of those cases in 
certain jurisdictions was no longer allowed. But I also say it because I cannot tell you the number of cases that I took over at different points in time, because on the eve of trial, counsel representing these corporations would say, I cannot try this case. We cannot try it. We have to settle it. And I personally think that that's a disservice to our clients to refuse to go in and try a case simply because we may lose, because there are times when there are greater issues at stake. This was one where the client was willing to do that. And I suspect once you have the reputation to go in and do as you did, try the case, then the phone keeps ringing, right? It does. Although, you know, for a long time, I felt obligated to tell somebody I just lost $100 million. (laughs) You don't quite know what that does to you when you lose that kind of money and you have to stand up and keep going without a break at all. I mean, it is, and I think it's important, but, you know, you ask about my practice over the years. I probably ended up spending the vast majority of my time trying cases in what were considered to be unfavorable jurisdictions for my corporate clients. And I guess if I had some piece of advice to young lawyers as they embark upon their careers, I would tell them to be willing to take a risk. You know, people in general, and lawyers specifically, are not natural risk takers. And so you're told, you know, don't ask a question that you don't know the answer to, or ask only leading questions on cross-examination. And I think that that's a disservice to the client. While it's very wise, sage advice for a brand new lawyer, as we get older, you have to be willing to take the risk. You got to be willing to stand up without notes and talk to the jury, even if you forget something. And even if you're not perfect and you have to be willing to take risks for your clients, even if it means losing a case sometimes. You were inducted into the American College of Trial Lawyers in 1997, at which time, I'm not sure there were a ton of women in this organization. What has it meant to be a member of the college? Without question, being inducted into the college was the greatest honor I ever received. But beyond just the honor, I think it opened so many doors and so many opportunities to impact both younger lawyers and the judicial system and to take part in activities to make it better and to ensure that we actually do have a trial practice for younger people in the future. I have worked with mentoring programs and the National Trial Competition and a variety of other activities that are very specific towards ensuring the future not only of a fair and just judicial system and a fair and just jury system, but also to having adequately trained and experienced trial lawyers to participate in that system. And that's been important to me. How did you become more involved in the college? Was that something that you sought out or did members reach out to you? How did that come about? 
Well, I was fortunate in that the very first year I was inducted, I was asked to serve on the National Trial Competition Committee, which is the greatest committee in the college, according to anybody that's ever served on it. We only have one obligation during the course of the year, and that is to go to Texas during a weekend in March or April and judge the finals of the national trial competition. The nice part about that is it gets you exposure to a small group of fellows in the college from a variety of different areas, and so it's an easy way to get to know other fellows and to begin to find your way into participating in the various committees and strategies. As a result of that, I was invited to participate in other activities and ultimately became a regent in the college. But I can't say that it was because I did anything or actively sought anything out other than those substantive areas that I was particularly interested in, whether it was the Complex Litigation Committee or the Trial Competition Committee or the Mentoring Committee. With respect to the trial competition, there's teaching involved with that, right? I mean, as far as the students are concerned. There is. I mean, the students are given a problem. They have a limited amount of time to essentially try the case, examine, cross-examine witnesses, make an opening and closing. At the end of each of those trials, if you will, The fellows of the college that are there and actually judging make comments. You're given a little bit of restrictions on what you can say because you don't want to impact the competition. But there are things that you can say or do about how a person addresses the jury or how a person stands or what they do in respect to the judge and how they stand. Those are things that, unfortunately, many of those students, some of them actually come without coaches and don't have coaches that are actual trial lawyers. And we would laugh sometimes because you would see that their performances would be geared towards what somebody had done on Law and Order or Perry Mason or something, (laughs) which was not real in terms of the courtroom. So, for example... You may remember that in one of those shows, it became popular for somebody to stand up and talk for a paragraph or so and then back up and say, hello, my name is Christy Jones. For most of us that were there judging it, it was not an effective or realistic approach to the case. It was based on a TV story as opposed to actually trying to communicate with the jury. Sure. So in those types of circumstances, we were able to share real experiences, not telling them what they should say to win the competition, but to tell them, for example, this may not be the best approach to this. You may want to start out with actually telling your story rather than trying to make this dramatic inference, particularly if it's a fender bender or something. So you have those kind of opportunities for teaching. Have you found other opportunities for teaching in your career, and do you enjoy it? 
I enjoy teaching trial practice, and I have spent a fair amount of time teaching trial practice courses. I don't consider myself to be a natural teacher. I would never want to teach law school, for example. But teaching trial practice courses, whether in law school or NIDA courses or ABA courses where you're actually trying cases or on your feet or doing those type of things, I think are very helpful to young lawyers. And certainly they were helpful to me early on in my career to take one. So I do enjoy those and I do recommend them. Did you start your career at Butler Snow? I started it, and I have essentially finished it. (laughs) I was fortunate in that I started in the right place for me and remained there. And that is not the norm, it seems like, these days. But why did you pick Butler Snow to begin with? Let me just say, I did not intend to come back to Mississippi. That was not my plan immediately after law school. But all I wanted to do was to try cases, And there were not many women trying cases. And I was told on a couple of occasions by firms I was really interested in that if I wanted to practice corporate law, they had a position for me. But that they did not feel their clients would allow a woman to represent them in the courtroom. So I sent out a group of resumes to law firms in Mississippi, thinking surely I could get a job in Mississippi. And surprisingly, I came to interview with my firm and my mentor, who was also a fellow in the college, interviewed me and said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to try cases. And I asked him, I said, would you let me try cases? And he said, if you want to try cases, you can try cases. He said, I might not send you to Simpson County, but you can try cases. Well, suffice it to say that three months later, I was in Simpson County in trials, and I found it's a little bit ironic, but there had been forerunners in Mississippi of women trial lawyers, a few, but they had been there who were very, very highly thought of. And so I was trying cases three months into my practice and was supported in every way possible by my firm. Wow. I mean, I think that's even unique these days to get out of law school and be trying cases if you're not a prosecutor or a public defender. How have you seen over the years women in trial work change? And maybe not women ourselves, but have you seen the changes in trial law for women? I have. I'll be the first to admit, I came along at the right time in the right place, and I had many opportunities because I was a woman. Just like when I was telling you about the drug cases early on, I benefited from that. But early on, there were very few women trying cases. Since that time, obviously, the numbers have multiplied significantly. I personally never had a single adverse situation occur in a courtroom because I was a woman. Hmm. I'd be the first to say I never, ever experienced anything but respect and encouragement. I know that others didn't have that experience 
And I think part of that was because I was lucky in the firm that I was associated with. And I remember a very specific luncheon that I had when I'd been practicing about 12 years. And there were women from all over the country. There were about 15 of us. And it was just very informal, everybody talking about their various practices and their law firms and jawing back and forth and complaining about, you know, whether or not they got family leave or whatever. And they began to complain about the men with whom they worked. And each one of them worked with men. And they finally turned to me and said, Christy, you're the only person out of this entire group that seems to have your own practice. How did it happen? And I said to them very honestly, my mentor, my Larry Frank, who was the fellow in the college, gave it to me. He basically said, you want the opportunity? Here it is. Go get it. And I think that some of us, and particularly those of us who became fellows in the college early on, had similar experiences. We had mentors who basically were willing to do whatever it took to ensure that we had opportunities in the courtroom. I think without question that there was a little bit of an unwritten rule at that time that nobody said, but we instinctively knew we had to work a little bit harder to prove ourselves sometimes, not with our own firm, but with clients or with judges or whomever. I think that has changed significantly. I do think that Women are getting respect in the courtroom pretty much universally now, and certainly for those who are accomplished trial lawyers are putting in the effort to do that. Unfortunately, I think that for many women, there is still the struggle between family and the trial practice and children and the trial practice. And that is and always will be an individual struggle that has to be handled on an individual basis. I think there are far too many women that have left the practice because they found it too difficult to juggle. And I'm hoping that maybe one of the good things that will come out of the pandemic will be a little bit more flexibility that will assist more people in staying in the trial practice. Yeah, I think we can hope for that. One of the things that I think falls into this ability to juggle is knowing yourself and knowing what makes you happy and how to relax. Being able to reach out to those things in the moment where you need to just take a moment. I noticed that you are a cyclist and an avid cook and even have written a family cookbook. And I just I got to know more. Tell me about those things. Well, at one time I was an avid cyclist. Now I'm lucky if I get out once a month. I do love to cook and I have written a cookbook, although that's a little bit of a strong statement. I grew up cooking with my grandmother. And so I inherited both my maternal and paternal grandmother's cookbooks. Now, I got my hands on them in large part because I promised everybody that I would copy them or copy the certain recipes and circulate it. Well, as any good lawyer will do from time to time, I procrastinated until it got embarrassing. (laughs) And after about 20 years, 
I did publish the cookbook. It's the old family recipes along with a lot of new things that we all cooked within the family. And so my mother and my grandmothers and my sister and sister-in-laws all contributed. But the most notable thing about the cookbook is that not only does it contain all of those recipes, I realized that I was a repository of much of the family history because I would sit and talk with my grandparents and hear those stories about their growing up or their family and whatever. And I realized that if we don't tell those stories and share them, they die. So I actually went back and researched our family history going back into the early 1800s and have a paragraph and pictures where they were available about each member of the family up through the date in which it was published. So it's kind of an interesting history novel as well. I published 300 copies. It has been restricted to my family and friends. You know, much to my dismay, there are errors in it. There are misplaced commas. I have a pound of butter in white sangria. But how it got there, I still don't know. Well, I mean, you know, was... butter makes everything better. I mean, that's just that's right. fact. That's right. <laughs> oh, my You also have a lot of community presence and volunteer work. Tell us about that. Most of my work over the years has been with kids. I mean, I have worked with a group of kids from inner city Jackson that we started with. There were four of us that took a group of 12 children that were identified by the school. And as children with promise, but who for whatever reason were not thriving. In part, some of them, their parents had abandoned them. Some of them had drugs in the family. Some of them was, you know, financial issues and whatever. And so we actually worked with those kids for about 10 years. Out of the 12, we got six through college, which was important to us. So I've done several things like that in terms of working with big brothers, big sisters, and whatever. I am currently chairman of the board of the Mississippi Museum of Art, working with a completely different area. But I think it's important, you know, people complain about lawyers all the time. Mm -hmm. But lawyers happen to be the people that contribute the most to the organization of society. And I think we have that obligation. Do you recommend lawyers finding time for community work like that? Do you find it fulfilling? Well, I think it's fulfilling, and I think it's rewarding. I do recommend that lawyers find time for that, particularly young lawyers, for very different reasons, though. And that is that as you are exposed to different groups of people, you begin to learn what makes them tick. And you begin to appreciate different cultures, and you learn how to talk with them. And if you're going to be a trial lawyer, you have to have some sense of how to communicate with people from all different walks of life. And I think that simply working in the community in whichever way you choose to do so makes you a better lawyer. Hmm. You've also done volunteer work in Asia. What kind of work? I worked in a soup kitchen in Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon, for a month. It was a soup kitchen that is organized and funded by a group of Buddhist farmers from the Mekong Delta. 
Vietnam is a very poor country and doesn't have significant health facilities throughout the country. All of the treatment for cancer, for example, is centered in Saigon. And if you have to be hospitalized, whether for surgery or for chemo or any type of treatment, you have to come to Saigon. At the time then, and I assume now, many families were forced to choose between medicine and food. And so this group that I worked with were farmers from the Mekong Delta that would come and give a month of their time. They lived in a house where they had two rooms above that the women stayed in one and the men stayed in the other. And then the first floor was basically a cookhouse with these giant vats. And they would start to work at about three o'clock in the morning. And I would go in at six. They would cook rice and soups and vegetables. And we would bag them and then we would take them. They served basically 2,000 meals a day to people in the hospital or to the families that were with those patients. I always thought, and hopefully still have the opportunity, that I would work in some third world country in some type of volunteer effort when I retired, that I'd have a long-term ongoing effort to work with the community. And so I actually went and worked there to see whether or not I could do it. And what did you learn? Well, I learned that I could. You know, I actually stayed in basically a hostel, was taken to the cookhouse every day on the back of a motorcycle. And it was a long month. I thoroughly enjoyed it, every bit of it. But I will tell you that I went and checked in the Park Hyatt the day I finished. <laughs> and I sat there and had room service and a massage. <laughs> oh, I hear you. So speaking of, you know, could you do it? I heard you say earlier that are you partially retired? Are you retired? I am essentially retired. I'm still off counsel with the firm. I yeah. do a lot of consulting with the firm and work primarily with the younger lawyers and associates. And if somebody needs a senior lawyer to go sit in the courtroom with them, you know, I will do that. But in terms of the day-to-day -day activity with clients in the courtroom, I'm not doing that anymore. How did you come to that decision? For me, being a trial lawyer took 125% of everything I had, and I loved it. But I had some other things I wanted to do, and I realized that I could not practice and do what I wanted to do in the trial practice on a less than full-time basis. So I decided that it was time that I'd had a great, wonderful career, and it was time for me to do some other things. And so what are those other things now? Well, I'm doing a little painting. I'm doing a little traveling. And I am doing an almost full-time job as the chair of the Mississippi Museum of Art right now. So I've got a lot of different irons in the fire. I love that because I think a lot of attorneys struggle with figuring out what we could possibly be good at and enjoy other than practicing law. I always enjoy hearing that you can gracefully extract yourself from just the full-time practice and really still enjoy the experience and still be involved. And I do believe 
being a resource and a mentor for younger lawyers is so critical. And I know you do too. I do. I think that's wonderful. Well, Christy, thank you so much for sharing with us and for inspiring me and and our listeners to take some of your stories and advice to heart. I really do appreciate it. I've really enjoyed our talk. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Our next episode drops on Thursday, so please subscribe now and hear every inspiring episode.